You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, a few months ago, I got a TV for my room. It's the, the first time I've had a TV in my room since probably high school, and I really don't know why I got this TV in particular. I think I tried to try to get this TV so I could relax. And um, it turns out I'm not much of a, a TV guy after all. So I've probably turned this thing on 30 times since I've purchased it. And uh, maybe, may, maybe I've turned it on 30 times or so. And when I do, I lay in bed and I scroll through the different options of television. And basically my TV has compiled on the home screen uh, through Netflix and Amazon and all the sorts of uh, free TV and all the things I've downloaded. It's compiled previews of shows. And so sometimes I just kind of lay in bed and as I'm scrolling, I'm looking at these previews and I'm just kind of thinking, this is, this is really dumb. This is the same show recycled from the other show. It's the same plot line recycle into a new plot line. So you see a new crime show, well, it's the same crime show. Or you see a new alien invasion show, well, it's the same alien concept as the other show. So same show and same show. And so essentially, I end up just kind of laying in bed watching previews of show and s- shows. And so I really, I, I don't have any idea why I, I got this TV. But I say all that because recently, I stumbled upon a show. Its preview really caught me as I was uh, laying in bed, and it's, it's got a lot of crude humor, so let me just uh, uh, say I guess I can't recommend this particular show, but the show is going to be up on the screen, it, screen. It's called Jury Duty. Uh, I'm not going to ask if anybody's watched this. You may not want to uh, uh, out yourself at church, but uh, the show's premise is that there's 12 jurors, and, and uh, 11 of them are actors, paid actors, and one of them is real. This guy in the middle, Ronald Gladden, he's a real-life solar contractor out of, out of California. And the show is basically a blend between the, the, the office, you might say, and a reality TV show. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a reality TV show with, with a little bit of documentary in it. And it's, it's made by the same people that did uh, the, the show, the, the office. And so basically what happens in this show is uh, basically this guy, Ronald, he gets a jury summons. And, and it's all a setup. So he's totally unaware that it's, it's fake. And the production team has, has taken over the courthouse. They're, they've got hidden cameras everywhere. And, and every part of the two-week or so trial is totally scripted. The judge, the attorneys, uh, the, the case itself, the bailiffs, they're all actors. The case is, is fake. But uh, everything that happens in the show, and it, it's, it's pretty funny, everything that, that happens in the show inside and outside the courtroom is is scripted, so you know every day something crazy happens. Uh, it, it's, it's over the top at times, and, and every character is really unique, so most of them are played by, uh, by, by comedians. James Marsden is in the show as well. He plays a kind of an over-the-top version of himself, but, but Ronald, he just kind of keeps his cool. He's, he's actually, as you watch the show, he's a really uh, humble and likable guy. Now, at the end of the show, I'm not going to ruin it for you all, uh, but obviously they have to tell Ronald. 
They, they have to tell him uh, what they've been up to. And so, uh, again, I won't, I won't ruin the show, but uh, he finds out, and it's a big surprise. It's a, it's a big shock to him. He had no idea, and it's, it's totally shocking. And it's actually really, really good TV. I, I teared up uh, on this show just, just a little bit. Now, I mentioned all of that because over the last three weeks, over the last three Sundays in particular here at King's Church, we have been in the courtroom of God. We've been in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, and the first few chapters of the book of Romans are really, really heavy. It's a scathing critique of humanity. Uh, we, we see this uh, before the holy God, before the judge, the prosecutor comes and, and he brings an accusation. His accusation is that we as human beings, we are sinful. And he backs it up with tons of evidence, and we saw that over the last few, few weeks. He, he brings all these uh, uh, bits of evidence to kind of back up his, his accusation. And then all of a sudden, the indictment comes, and the conclusion comes. And the conclusion is that we are guilty, right? We're, we're guilty. It's heavy. Romans, Romans 1 and 2 and then the beginning of 3, it's, it's really heavy. But here this morning, we come to a huge surprise. We come to a total shock. We're looking at probably the most important passage in the entire Bible, or as one pastor calls it, the most important paragraph ever written. Now, what is that huge surprise? Well, not that the courtroom is fake or that we're on a prank TV show, but the surprise is that God in his mercy, God in his grace has so loved us that he's given us a way out. He's given us a way to be right with him, unlike anything else we could have ever thought up. He's given us a way not only to be not guilty, but to be righteous, holy in his sight. To not only be forgiven, but to be welcomed. Sinners that we are, imperfect people that we are, he's given us a way to be welcomed into his love and all his presence. Now, what this reality is called, this surprise, this shock, it's called justification. Justification. It's generally a legal word, but what the word means is to change one's relationship to an object or a statement by evidence. Let me just say that again. It means to change one's relationship to an object or a statement by evidence. It has to do with, it doesn't have to do, I should say, it doesn't have to do with a change in the object or the statement. It has to do with a change in the relationship to the object or the statement. So not a change in the object or the statement, but a change in the relationship to the object or statement. Let me give you an example because that was a little confusing. You say to me, uh, lizard people rule London. And I say, hmm, justify that statement. Justify that statement. Now what am I saying? I'm not saying change that statement. What I'm saying is it's hard for me to accept that statement. So do something. Change my relationship to that statement. Give me evidence so I can accept that statement. By saying justify that statement, I'm not saying change that statement. I'm saying, hey, I'm about to reject that statement, so give, so give me some evidence. Help me to get into a new relationship with your statement so that I can accept it. Justify means to change one's relationship to the statement or to the object. Now, why do I mention all this? 
because this is precisely what the gospel is all about. Jesus has done something so that when God looks at us, even though there's so much imperfect about us, even though there's so much sinful about us, God's relationship with us can now be different. God looks at us in our sin and says, I'm about to reject that. But Jesus comes along and he does something so that God's relationship to us is different, so that he accepts us. It's not that he totally changes us so that we're acceptable. It's that he makes us acceptable because he's done something on our behalf. He changes God's relationship to us and not only forgives us, but he welcomes us into all his love and his presence. Now, this reality is at the heart of the Bible. It's at the heart of the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's at the heart of the very character and the nature of God, justification. And so that's really going to be my main idea. It's the, the main idea of this passage, and it's also going to be the main idea, therefore, of the sermon. And it will be up on the screen, and it's this. Embrace the surprising grace of justification. Embrace the surprising grace of justification. My points, which are also going to flow from this passage, are also going to be up on the screen, and they're this. Number one, how justification comes. We'll see that in the first part of the, this passage. Number two, how justification can come, more of a rationale for it. And then number three, our response or the response to justification. So let's look at this passage. Let's dive in. It's a little bit technical, but there's a lot of richness here. So our first point, how justification comes. The passage begins, and he says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's a surprise. Righteousness can come to you in a totally new and revolutionary way. Apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ. Which means that obedience and morality and compliance contribute absolutely nothing in getting this righteousness. Nothing. It's a righteousness that's completely outside of us that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, all this was predicted by the law and the prophets, shorthand for the Old Testament. Now, a good question is, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Because a lot of us hear that word, and this word is somewhat, it's almost a negative word in our culture these days. Uh, but the, the concept is everywhere, and, and let me explain. We can think of righteousness, a, a good way to define it is that it's a performance record that opens up doors. Righteousness is a performance record that opens up doors. For instance, if you want a job, you look at the job posting, and then you tailor your resume. You include your experience, you highlight your skills, and you hope you have everything on that particular resume that makes you worthy of that said position. You send it in and you say, look at this, accept me for the position, and you hope, perhaps anxiously, you hope that you'll get the job. Or say school, maybe another example. You get your packet ready, there's a school that you want to apply to, perhaps as a grad school or a college, you send your credentials. You, you take your tests, you send your record, and you hope that everything on there, everything that you filled out on your packet will open up the door and that the school will accept you. You send it in and you essentially say, look at this, accept me for the degree program. And if you're good enough, 
so it goes, you hopefully get into the school. That is essentially the way that life works. Everybody has a performance record that can open up particular doors. If you have the right stuff, you can get into the right job, you can get into the right school, or you can get into all sorts of different types of opportunities. Now this is exactly why every religion and every culture on the face of the planet believes it's the same exact thing with God. If you want a connection to God, if you, if, you, if, if, if you want to believe that God will accept you, you pull out your record. Not your resume, not your grades, but you pull out your spiritual record. You pull out your, your moral record, that you're good enough. This is how they would say you go to heaven. This is how you get enlightened, how you connect to the divine. You get out your performance record, you develop a righteousness, and then you offer it up to God. You say, look at this, accept me. And if you're good enough, hopefully, maybe you'll get into God's love and God's presence. But then notice, there's a surprise here, the shock. Romans 3. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Said another way, for the first time ever, a, a new and never before seen approach to God is revealed. A way to not just get a good record or a great record, but to get the very righteousness of God. To get a divine record, his record, his credentials available to us as a gift. Now, of course, this is what makes the Christian gospel so unique. It's the absolute reverse of every other religion and every other culture out there. Every religion, every culture out there says, in their own way, you develop your own righteousness within yourself, and then you offer it up to God. And maybe, just maybe, maybe he'll accept you if you have what it takes. You do enough good things, you, you play by the rules, you offer up sacrifices, and maybe God will accept you. But the gospel says something so different. It says something in reverse, that God Almighty has developed a perfect righteousness for you, and now he offers it to you. Now, how do we get that? Verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we get the righteousness of God. Through faith, we get his perfect performance record. So much so that if you'll receive it as a gift this morning, it means the end of trying to develop a righteousness within yourself. A righteousness that you hope one day God will accept. It means having absolute assurance that he accepts you always. Why? Because it's not based on you or I. It's based on him. The Jesus Christ who is totally sufficient this morning, who asks us to receive salvation in the same way he accomplished it, through weakness, through opening our hands, lifting our hands and saying, we cannot do it without your help. God, fill us, change us, save us. So faith, faith in him, this is how justification comes. Faith in him connects us to the very righteousness of God. This is how God's relationship to us changes, how we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We're so connected to Jesus in such a way that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. And as a result, even with all the wrongs, even with all the flaws, God sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. This is how righteousness, how justification comes. 
Now, the passage continues, and we see the second point, how justification can come. How justification can come, meaning what is the rationale behind all of this? How does this make sense? We see this starting in verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, we're digging deep. We're lifting up the hood and we're seeing how the engines work. We're seeing here how justification can come, how it makes sense. Notice verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning we've all missed the mark. We've all sinned. We've all missed God's perfect standard. But then we see that word again, verse 24. We've been justified, meaning there's hope. There's, there's not only a, a way to be forgiven, but there's a way to be welcomed into all of God's love, all of God's presence. Now, why is that? Why would God do this? Well, the hint there is the word grace. Grace. We're justified by his grace as a gift, verse 24. Grace means that God cannot be reduced to an angry judge this morning. At the foundation of the universe isn't just justice. At the foundation of the universe is also wisdom, and in that wisdom is love, mercy, kindness, hope, and it's reflected in grace. Now, what is God's grace? God's grace is like an unexpected sunset. It's a surprise. God's grace is his love shown to us, the unlovely. It's God's peace given to us, the restless. It's the unmerited favor of God. In great relief from Romans 1, 2, and 3 over the last few weeks, grace means that all of your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. God's grace is his absolute refusal to let us you and I define our relationship with him by our failures or our abilities. He comes to us this morning not because of what we've done or what we can do, but because of who he is, his grace. This morning, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Understand this. If you miss this, you miss everything. You're more than your mistakes. And... It's God's grace that is made away. Notice the passage goes on. It notes grace isn't just a floating concept out in space. Grace happens through, verse 24, the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Said another way, justification can come to us because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Justification makes sense because of the redemption we have in Jesus. Now, what is redemption? The word, the word basically means to buy back. It, it means to, to, to bring back from destruction, to set free. And this is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. The picture is that Jesus frees us. He brings us back. He sets us free. He breaks all of our shackles. Now, how does he do that? Well, in the next verse, this is really the heart of it all. We're justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation by his blood to be received 
by faith. So now we're really at the heart of everything. We're at the center of the center, the heart of the heart. How justification can come. It can, it can come because of this word propitiation, this act propitiation. The Greek word there is helisterion. The word essentially means to satisfy the justice and wrath of God. It's sometimes translated as the atoning sacrifice. The point is, is at the center of salvation, at the center of justification, is Jesus Christ who suffers and dies for you and I. Jesus Christ who takes on the wrath of God, the justice of God that you and I deserve. Now, some people really struggle with this concept. Some people hear that and they think, that sounds pretty barbaric. They say, uh, satisfying the wrath of God, the justice of God, that sounds a little bit like the, the mean Greek gods. They, they say that kind of sounds like the, the Iliad, where, where King, King uh, Agamemnon is, is trying to sail to Troy, and the winds won't carry his army. And, and so what does he do? He sacrifices his, his daughter to appease the wrath of the Greek gods. They say, isn't this pretty much the same thing? This kind of sounds like uh, divine retribution. Now, the short answer this morning is no. Definitely not. It's the opposite, actually. Jesus going to the cross and, and dying for us isn't something that's out of fear. Jesus going to the cross, he's not trying to appease an irritated deity. He's not trying to manipulate a fickle God. He goes to the cross out of divine love for you and I, out of purpose. In fact, we might even say this morning that Jesus Christ going to the cross isn't a contradiction to God's love. It's because of God's love. Let me just say that again. Jesus Christ going to the cross isn't a contradiction to God's love. It's because of God's love for you and I. Consider just a second how love works in human relationships and in human friendships. Two things. One, love is all about giving up a piece of yourself for someone else's benefit. In relationships and friendships, love is all about giving up a piece of yourself for someone else's benefit. The point here is that true love for a spouse, for a kid, for a friend, it has to, be, it has to do with giving up your time, your talents, your energy, your personal comforts, your resources. If you love someone, you'll do that. You'll give up a, a piece of yourself for them. And of course, we probably see this best in parenting. A good mom or a good dad is going to give up a chunk of their freedom for their kids' growth. And we also see this in, in the realm of hurting people, the difficulty of hurting, uh, the difficulty of helping and loving hurting people. Giving yourself to a hurting person can often be draining. To step out in the line of fire for someone else can actually be very hurtful. The point is, is that real love, true love, costs you something. And the most transforming kind of love is a love that costs something. Their troubles become your troubles. Another thing on how love works in human relationships and friendships and forgiveness is that forgiveness mean, means taking the hit and not hitting back. Forgiveness means taking the hit and not hitting back. Uh, I recently shared my car got totaled. A, a guy ran his Chevy Tahoe into my, my car and... Uh, and completely totaled it. It's worth $8,000. Now, forgiveness has two levels here. Number one, I forgive him it was an accident. That's, that's easy. But second, he owes me. 
this guy owes me $8,000. To forgive him would, would mean me saying, I'll eat it. You don't owe me. You're forgiven. Now, in that case, who takes the, the loss? Me. I take an $8,000 hit. Now, am I going to do that? Mm, probably not. <laughs> um, the point is, though, that, that to forgive somebody means you take the hit. That's why forgiveness is so hard. You have to absorb the offense. Now, why do I mention these two things? Why do I mention these two things as we're thinking about the nature of true love, transforming love, as we're thinking about forgiveness, how it works in real life? You know, if, if, if you really want to love someone, it costs you parts of yourself. If, if you really want to forgive someone, it actually hurts. You have to take a hit. Why do I mention all these things? Because this is what Jesus Christ is all about. God Almighty looks at us, the hurting, the needy, the sinful. And what does he do? What does he decide to do? He decides to love. He decides to give up a piece of himself for our benefit. But not only a piece of himself, he gives all of himself. He comes and he dies for the needy, for the drained, for the wounded, for the condemned. And in Jesus Christ, he dies. He takes on our troubles. Our troubles become his troubles, and real love costs him something. And on the cross, he takes the hit. It's the picture of ultimate forgiveness and human reality, the complete and total hit for our sin. He absorbs the penalty, the full weight of the justice and the wrath of God. He absorbs our offenses. He absorbs God's justice on the cross. He dies in our place. The point is, this is how justification can come. Our guilt, our shame had to be taken care of in full. And on the cross, Jesus Christ takes the full weight of our sin on himself. He died for us because he loves us. He died for you because he loves you. So that we could say with the Bible, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our sin from us. It is finished. He paid it all. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The passage continues, and God really becomes the center focus as we're thinking about how does justification work? How, how, is it, how does it make sense? What's the rationale? Verse 25. This, that means all of it, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In other words, it's saying all of that, propitiation, grace, redemption, all of that proves that when God forgave people before the cross, when God accepted people before Jesus, even though they were sinful, that God is still righteous, that he wasn't a compromised judge. How? Well, because when he forgave people before the cross, he's forgiving them on credit. He was saying one day there's going to be money in the bank to pay for these sins. And of course, at the coming of Jesus, that's realized, verse 26. It, that is again all of redemption, grace, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
In other words, it's saying propitiation, grace, redemption, the blood of the cross, all that proves that when God justifies people, when God accepts people, even though they're still sinful, that God is just, that he's still righteous, that he's not a compromised judge. Now, how is that? Well, because at the cross of Christ, God's justice and God's mercy meet perfectly. At the cross, God does not minimize our sin. He doesn't sweep our sin under the carpet. He deals with it in full, in the painful, awful, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Full atonement, paid in full. And also at the cross, notice he doesn't withhold his mercy. He doesn't withhold his kindness. He pours it out completely on those who will trust in him. That's how he remains just and the justifier, verse 26, at the same time for those who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now the passage closes out and really you see our final point. What's the response to all of this? There's lots of responses, but we're going to see three embedded in this text. Three that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, just busts out in application. And as we close out, I really have three just, just takeaways. They're right from the passage, and they're posed almost as rhetorical questions. So number one, I'll be brief. Number one, takeaway, humility. Humility. One of the takeaways as we think about what all this means for our lives is humility. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The point here is that because of the gospel, because of justification, there's no boasting. There's no boasting. There's no boasting before God. In Philippians 3, there's a, there's a great example of this. Uh, the, the letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he tells us that before he became a Christian, what he had confidence in was essentially himself. It was his pedigree. It was his resume. He was boasting in those things. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That is quite the list. It's a family pedigree. It's the right racial background. It's good professional experiences. It's good education attainments. It's great religiosity. It's great morality. But then he says, I consider this all rubbish. He says, I don't need any of those things. None of those things define me. None of those things justifies me. The point is, what makes us a Christian this morning? What can make you a Christian this morning isn't that you repent from your sins. Now, you should repent of your sins. But that can make you just another Pharisee like Paul. What makes you a Christian this morning is you repent of your justification, your false justifications, your false righteousness, the good things that we often take, the good gifts that we use to try to justify ourselves before a holy God. There's no ground for boasting because it's all his grace. That's humbling. Number two, another takeaway we see from this as the passage goes on is unity. Unity. One of the things that, that flows off the, the, the passage here is that as he thinks about this idea of Jesus being our justifier, God saving us, is unity. Verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, 
who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The point here is that the foot of the cross, the foot of Christ's cross, and through faith in him, we are all exactly on the same level. In fact, the Bible says we receive the same faith as Peter. Your faith is of equal standing to, to any great pastor, any great religious teacher, if they're in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. If we believe in Jesus Christ, that means we belong to the same family. No matter the denomination, the background, all those differences might be important, but they're not ultimately finally important. What's important is that we're in him. That together we share in the grace of God and the spirit of God. Unity. And then finally, one more takeaway. Takeaway number three, godliness. Godliness. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? You think his answer will be, of course. If it's all just about faith, if salvation is by faith, then who cares about the law? And here he's talking about the moral law, loving your, your neighbor, the Ten Commandments. If it's all by faith, who cares about how you live? But notice what he says. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The idea here is that if we're saved by faith, that faith is never alone. Knowing God, being loved by God, being in relationship with him means that our lives are different. We live our lives before the face of God by the power of his spirit that works within us. Humility, unity, godliness. Three takeaways. Corey Tenboom, who was a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp, once said, In the cross, God hurled our sins in the deepest part of the sea and then put up a sign there saying, No fishing allowed. No fishing allowed. Many of this morning, many of us this morning, we live with a sense of guilt. We live with a sense of disapproval. We live with a sense of fear. But I want to remind you this morning, your sin and my sin was paid for through Jesus Christ. He became your sin and my sin on the cross. Embrace his full forgiveness to you this morning. Embrace his justification for you. That he welcomes you into all his love and all his presence. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.